everybody, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and on today's episode, Ken will be answering some viewer questions. So uh, you guys often will send in your questions to uh, to emails and, and social media and all of that, and so we collect those, and uh, we'll take some time every now and again to answer some of those questions. So Ken... Thanks for joining us. I know you're in the Big Apple right now, and uh, I know that you've been traveling all day. So thank you so much for taking time and for uh, answering some of our our burning questions that uh, that we have. So thanks, thanks so much. Sure, glad to do it. <laughs> well, good. We're we're glad you're doing it. <laughs> yep, live from New York, but I'm not a Radio City musical. That's right. But if you want me to, I can get the mic out. Hey, look at that. I look like Elvis Costello, don't I? I'm probably dating myself to even mention Elvis Costello. I've heard of him. I've heard of him. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm going to read some questions here. We'll start with one, you know, should be a softball, really. Um, Jesus says to someone, they're they're following uh, Jesus. They want to follow Jesus. And they say, uh, to Jesus in the Gospels, hey, I would love to hang out with you. I would love to follow you. Uh, my dad just died. I, I've got to go take care of that. And then I will, um, I'll, I'll see you back here in just a little bit. And Jesus says something that is surprising. It was surprising to one of our, our viewers. And, and he says, let the dead bury the dead. And uh, basically says, you know, you need to not worry about that and come follow me. So wanted to start off the evening with that, uh, that question. What's up with that, Ken? Why would Jesus seem so um, disinterested in someone's, uh, someone's dead father and taking care of that? Uh, what, what's behind that? What's your take on that? Well, so to understand this passage, which is found in Luke chapter 9, verse 60, um, we're, we're looking at a series of teachings where Jesus is dealing with impediments to those who are sold out for the kingdom of God. And so the, the passage actually begins at verse 57, Luke chapter 9, verse 57. <coughs> it says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, all of these three stories, and again, they occur in a, you know, in a block. So th- these, these are three individuals that were probably all in the same, you know, meeting or same approximate time frame anyway. And each has his or possibly her own reason not to follow Jesus. The first one seems to be for somebody who wants to have the comforts of home, wants the luxury of a, of a settled and uh, well-ordered, tidy life. 
And so Jesus says, you know, foxes have holes. They have a place to go home. And the birds of air have nests. They have a place where they sleep at night. Uh, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. So to this one, he's speaking probably really prophetically based on either a word of knowledge where he sees something in the man's heart and motivation, uh, or maybe a word of wisdom. Uh, what, what is it that really drives this person? And, you know, this guy had said, I will follow you wherever you go. I say guy, like I said, it might have been a woman. It's more probably a man, just knowing the cultural context. I'm not trying to exclude women. I'm just aware of the context in which this was occurring. And so this person had said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, well, basically, hold on. I, you might not want to follow me everywhere I go because, you know, your own motivations and, and goals and objectives in life may not align with the life that you will take on if you decide to follow me. And then to another one, he says, follow me. And that one says, and this one, it says, he said, so we know this one is a man. He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but it's for you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, you got to understand that in the Jewish context, a, a funeral wasn't like a one-day event. Even in American society, it's usually not exactly one day. The particulars of the service might go on for, say, an afternoon, starts at one or two and is done at four. Um, but in a lot of these more traditional societies, they would have something like a wake, and it might go on for seven days or so. In fact, the traditional period of mourning in Jewish society was, in fact, seven days. And so really, when this man is saying, let me go bury my father, on the one hand, it's highly commendable that he wants to go bury his father, but there is something about the gospel. There's an immediacy to it. There's, there's an, a, a, you know, like respond now. We hear it in Paul's words to the Corinthians. I tell you, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Believe now. And so when Jesus calls this man, probably um, this is like, I'm here today and gone tomorrow. It, it really feeds right out of the first challenge that he gives to the first individual, where he says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In fact, you may not have caught it, so I'll restate it, but in verse 57, as they were going along the road, they were in progress, they were in transit. And so Jesus says this to this man, and if he goes away for seven days, who knows where Jesus is going to be, but he's going to be like way down the road. And so what Jesus is saying is you've got to make a decision in your discipleship, in your, in your walk with Christ, even at times, I wouldn't say you want to do this all the time. I don't think God's calling us to be universally rude and arrogant and, you know, cultural blockheads, but there will be times when you will even violate the norms of culture because the value of the kingdom is so great to you that it's the only appropriate response. And in this case, this man, this father of yours, he's already dead. And apparently Jesus is not going to raise this one from the dead. And so you need to leave the, those who are dead spiritually to bury this one who is dead physically. And you need to come with me and proclaim the kingdom of God. Because I'm now adding this, this is bracketed. It's not actually in the text. But your heart is so caught up in the doings of what we could call civil society that in fact, you will miss the gospel imperative. You will miss your moment where I'm calling you. I will move on. The call will vanish. You'll never catch up to me and you will be left behind 
living a life where you are yourself now among those who are dead. I mean, you're alive, but but the life that you that you felt, you the summons of the spirit, the thing that wanted to impel you out of the world you had and into this proper living, this this calling that I have on you, that will that will dissipate. And and I would say there is something of this that I've seen in many places. There's an immediacy to the gospel. There's a there's a thing where the word of the Lord comes to you, however it comes to you. And you know, I have to respond to this right now. And in fact, one of the things that most quenches the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers is when God speaks and we we hear it, but we don't always discern it. Or even if we do discern it, we don't re- respond to it. We, we have a partial obedience. And that's what seems to be going on with this man. And then there's a third one who says, well, I will follow you. And but I first have to say farewell to those in my home. This is not that dissimilar from the second guy. Just the second guy has a wake to go to. And this guy, apparently his family's all alive. But Jesus says the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus is really doing is he is saying, if you are mine, I'm calling you to a standard where you have nothing that precedes me. It's really a recapitulation of the first commandment out of Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. It's the same language in both cases. But we are to have no other gods beside the Lord. And so with that, these things in our life can become idols. They can become stumbling blocks. And so, again, I I think we want to attempt to maintain right and proper relationships. But there are times of that immediacy of God where the word of the Lord comes to you and you need to go right now. Because if you don't, you will have missed the hour of your visitation. Jesus wept over Jerusalem when he came into the city. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you under my wings as a mother hand gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And you did not know the hour of your visitation. And now you are left desolate, meaning you've got no one to turn to. And I will be gone. I'm going to be crucified. If if you had come to me and turned to me as the Messiah, I could have saved you from the wrath of the Romans. But because you didn't recognize that hour. And so I don't think we talk about this enough in modern American Christianity, that there is this immediacy, there is this summons of the gospel. And while there are some things that that can maybe be played out over a little bit of a longer period, there are other things where it is literally, you just got to drop what you're doing and come. We see this in the calling of Matthew in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus has come out of the synagogue in Capernaum, And Matthew, then known as Levi, is sitting in his tax booth. And when Jesus sees him, he says, follow me. And it says, immediately, he left his tax booth and followed Jesus. And just so, when Jesus had called Peter and Andrew and James and John, they were mending their nets, but he came to them and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it says they left their nets and followed him. So you see that same pattern of, I hear the summons, I hear the call. And it's now incumbent upon me to respond. And, you know, the passage doesn't really answer the very obvious question that we would all ask, well, how are you going to make it up to mom and your brothers and sisters and your grandma and grandpa and, you know, all of the others in the family, the aunts and uncles and so forth, who would have been there? And they're like, well, where is your son? I mean, how come he's not here? That's a longer conversation but I guess when you come home from that, you know, expedition that you've gone on with Jesus, you say, look, the Lord called me and he was the Lord and I had to respond to him. 
And so now I want to try to make amends with you as best I can, knowing, of course, that may not be as easy as it sounds. Um, but that is kind of the awkwardness, and it is the it is the imperative of Jesus because we can have nothing else in front of him. No, that's good. That's really good. And I think, too, I mean, you know, he understands the eternal much better than we do. Yeah. And, you know, understands that this this is a vapor, you know, probably much more than we than we do. So I love that. That's good. OK, Ken, one down. One down. Man, we're just burning through these. <laughs> well, these is, is the wrong term because we've only had one. But okay, let's hear what else our, uh, our listeners have to say or ask. All right. Uh, this is from Sally. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Sally in Santa Monica, dialing in. Um, no, this is from someone. In, and the question is, um, and you may or may not have heard much talk about this. I have heard a tremendous amount of talk about this, but um, can you speak to this question of the divine feminine nature of God? Does it exist? Is it real? Uh, there's, there's people that are, that are praying uh, that I know to uh, divine um, feminine spirit, um, mother of God, the mother, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, love to hear your thoughts uh, on that. Well, um, <laughs> it may be that the answer I'm going to give will not be satisfying to some of our listeners, but um, in the Hebrew Bible, there is no uh, neuter pronoun. There are only masculine and feminine pronouns. And when we look at the, at the pronouns that are used of God, in the Hebrew Bible, they are essentially all male. There are a couple that might suggest uh, the divine feminine, but not in the sense that people are envisioning this. Far more predominant is language like this. Yahweh is a man of war. Now, he's not literally a man, but again, we see that masculine kind of image. And even in the prophets, we hear language like, I am a father to the fatherless. And so over and over, the divine self-revelation is of God as male. And now, I don't think that means that he's got male genitalia, but it probably does mean that um, he is wired somehow in ways that we tend to think of as more the masculine than the feminine. And yet there are places where God does say, I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers his chicks. I mentioned that in the last question, Jesus uses that language. So there we have a little bit of feminine imagery. Um, in one place, God is called the many breasted one. So people want to take that to refer to the divine feminine, but overwhelmingly the pronoun usage in the old Testament referring to God is masculine. Now, sometimes people want to say, well, but it's different in the New Testament because we have the revelation of the Trinity. And, okay, fair enough. And they want to make the Holy Spirit be a female personage. So before we get there, let's just not forget that two of the people in the Trinity, by self-revelation, you know, nowadays people are picking their own pronouns. Well, God picked his own pronouns, and he called himself Father and Son, and so his pronouns are he, his, and him. 
And so just as in today's world, we are expected to respect the pronouns of the speaker or whoever it is we're addressing, and not to do that is a microaggression. Um, I would say that if we begin changing the pronouns of God from uh, male to female, we are actually violating the revelation of God. Now, this is really important because the scriptures themselves teach that our knowledge of God comes because he chose to reveal himself. Prior to his self-revelation, people grope and seek and they, you know, look around and they you know, they're along the wall, they're feeling for the crack in the wall or the door or something, but, but they can't actually find their way to him. And so God of his own mercy reached down and he made a revelation of himself, which is progressive. And more and more as he unveils who he is throughout the pages of scripture, going all the way back to Genesis and continuing on to Revelation, um, and by the way, there are parts of the Bible that are out of order, so you can't just say linearly, but if you, you know, put all the books in the right order, you see increasingly that God reveals himself in this way. Some people want to say that the Holy Spirit is a type of a, of a female Godhead within the Trinity, um, and in some circles, the Holy Spirit is used as a surrogate for a female figure if we are doing certain kinds of inner healing prayer and things like that. But the thing that's interesting is uh, the word pneuma in Greek is a neuter uh, noun. So the, probably the, the best we could render it in English would be it. And yet we know the Holy Spirit has personality because of the way Jesus describes him. And over and over in other places, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we find that he is described as he, the Holy Spirit. So even the construct of trying to make the Holy Spirit a feminine divine doesn't really hold up in the face of scripture. So over and over, we are driven back to the witness of scripture. And I, I mean, I understand that, especially for uh, you know, the women, many of them want to have God be female. But in this instance, God has chosen to reveal himself to us as male. And so we are not allowed to remake him in our own image. We are made in his image. We don't remake him in our image because it suits our modern sensibilities. There are many cultures where they have female gods. Um, now, the Jews didn't have this, but the Canaanite gods, among others, they had uh, Ashtra. She was a female goddess. And if you look at the gods of India, there are a number of female gods. Kali is the goddess of death. Um, so, I mean, we could go down and list a bunch of names, but uh, if we go over to the Far East, uh, there are a number of them, but particularly within the Buddhist tradition in Northern Asia, uh, so Taiwan, China, that area up there, uh, Japan, <clears throat> um, there, there is one particular goddess that they love to worship, and she is viewed as the goddess of mercy. And so there is a goddess tradition within the religions of the world but the thing that we have to understand is that we are not called to look like all the other nations. We are not called to have our religion look like all the other religions. I really think this is part of the offense and shock of the Judeo-Christian tradition um, through 40 centuries of revelation or 45 centuries of revelation is that over and over, God says, I don't want you to be like them. I want you to be different from them. That's what it means to be holy. That means set apart. It means consecrated. It means unlike and dedicated in the manner that I intended for you to be dedicated. 
And with that, we understand that if God is calling us by, as he says, his own name, not her own name, it's, it's inappropriate, and we could even say downright blasphemous to call God she or her, or to use the feminine uh, possessive pronoun hers. That's just, this is not the way biblical revelation flows. And so, I mean, this is kind of a line in the sand. And like I said, I know this may not sit well with some of our listeners, and I don't mean to be harsh. I don't want to be divisive, but um, at some point you have to decide who you're going to serve. And if God has revealed himself and said, this is who I am, then we have to accept that at face value if we're going to serve him. Otherwise, we're actually engaging in idolatry by creating a God, once again, in our own preferred image of who or what God should be. And for a lot of people, that's offensive because in the modern world, we can kind of take and make things any way, any way we want. We can pick our God and you know name him, her, it, whatever we want to name it. You, you can do that, but you won't be doing it with the Judeo-Christian God who the Jews wouldn't even utter his name. They generally just called him Hashem, but it's widely believed that the four letters YHWH define the name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. Um, and Jesus taught us that we should call him Father. Yahweh is Father. And on that point, remember that when we're talking about God in Isaiah, it says he shall be called Wonderful God, Almighty Father, uh, the Prince, not Princess, of peace and the government shall be upon his shoulders and of the increase of his government there shall be no end this is coming right out of isaiah 9 i'm quoting it but we see right there that the language of god is strongly male and so with that the traditional way of understanding god in both the tanakh as well as in the new testament is to say god is he now we we understand that god is spirit and so he may not be strictly masculine or male the way you are, Grant, or the way I am, but, but there are these traits about him that make him definitely, I don't know, he's, he's not pansexual. He's not one of, you know, 42 genders lined up on a continuum. He lands on the male side of the spectrum, and that's just who it is that we serve. So just kind of talking that through just a little bit more. Can you speak to the ideas of male and female being made in his image about Solomon referring to wisdom as a she um, and even about, you know, the kingdom of God, there's uh, not male or female. I mean, so can you kind of speak to those? Uh, I've, I've had these conversations before. So can you kind of speak to those three, three points? Well, when God created, I'll say humanity now, um, he started out and he created Adam. By the way, Adam, it, to us, it's a very masculine name, but Adam in Hebrew actually means red. So probably Adam was red because he was made out of the dust of the earth. And of course, you know, most people believe that the Garden of Eden may have been somewhere in Africa. And if you understand the the geography of Genesis, where it describes these four rivers that bound it, it's likely that the Garden of Eden stretched out of the Fertile Crescent and went down into East Africa. Um, and so it's a very, very big expanse of territory. And it's out of that reddish earth 
not white sand, not black loam like we would find along the Mississippi River. Uh, it's red that that is the first uh, is the first human. Um, and it says that God made him man. But then he says it's not good for man to be alone. And so God created the woman out of the side of man, which is an interesting thing because a man, we just know biologically has an X and a Y chromosome. God selected the X and then duplicated it uh, when he made a woman. But it's, it's quite clear from the language of scripture. It says in the image of God created he them, male and female created he them. So there's something in humanity together, male and female, that replicates the image of God. But that's not to say God is a female. It's to say that these attributes of, of masculinity and femininity, when they come together, that complete image is what replicates most fully to our limited understanding, living here as fleshlings made out of the dust of the earth. Um, that is what replicates the image of God. So absolutely, there is that side of God who he has, what do we want to say, um, emotions, sentiments, things like that, that have a more nurturing uh, female side. Um, you know, God says that he brought Israel out of Egypt and he cared for her as though she were, you know, his own child. And he says, I watched over you as a mother would her nursing child. And he even says, if a mother should forsake her nursing child, I will not abandon you, Israel. But in all of this, there's nothing that suggests God is female. We just understand that these female aspects of God's nature or what we think of as female aspects um, are also uh, exhibited in God. So God has a patient and nurturing side in addition to being the God of justice and war. I got you. That's good. Um, and then thinking about kingdom of God, there's neither male uh, nor female. Uh, what, what, what do we say about that, especially in light of today's cultural milieu? <laughs> well, the context of that in the kingdom of God, um, Jesus says in heaven, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage for they will be like the angels. Well, the, the clear implication of that statement is that the angels are, I guess we would say asexual or sexless. In, in any case, they're not meant to reproduce. And, you know, part of the, well, the biggest part of man as male and female or mankind as male and female or humanity as male and female is the reproduction of children. This is kind of a lost thing in our, in our current consciousness. You know, many couples are coming together and they're simply not choosing to have children because it's too expensive or it's too hard or they, you know, whatever. But God's direct instruction going right back to the Garden of Eden to all humanity is this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, replenish the earth and subdue it and take dominion over it. So that dominion is actually part of the what females inherit along with men, but it's the reproduction that that is part of that mandate uh, that God gives. And apparently in heaven, there will be no reproduction. So we're not saying that there is neither male nor female. Our bodies will look, there'll be a resurrection body that cannot die. 
Um, it may have some other unusual qualities like the ability to go through a wall or something like that. But I think in heaven, we will be very much male and female still. Um, we will just no longer have that sex drive, that urge, because all of that need will no longer be there. We won't need to reproduce. We won't need to populate the earth. Oh, that's great. Well, I think we solved that issue just right there. I think it solves. That's two down. <laughs> this, you know, I understand these are incredibly nuanced topics. And, uh, and so, you know, just a disclaimer, we're not thinking these are exhaustive explanations and we could spend multiple podcasts on, on each of these, but, uh, yeah. And there, there are many books that people could, you know, get and read on these things. We do live in a very fluid time though, in all kinds of ways. And so a lot of what used to be understood as orthodoxy, orthodox teaching, by the way, orthodoxy means right teaching dox from doxus or dokeo to teach. Um, it's almost become vogue to try to rewrite things according to the sentiments of our day. And the very reason that we have orthodoxy is that the faith is immovable. This is in fact, what we see in Jude, you know, brothers, I want to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so these things that we're talking about, when we get into these matters of anthropology and how the image of God is reflected in male and female, these matters are actually very, very important to a right and proper understanding of the Bible. And when we start messing around with this and moving the goalposts, we end up in really strange places. I'm thinking of one woman I know who kind of got into this goddess thing. And the next thing I knew, she was talking about, um, she literally said that her number one person that she goes to for insight was a shaman. And she you know, gave her website or gave the website of the shaman and you go there and it says, yeah, this person is a shaman. They don't even make any pretense of being Christian. And so, you know, we've seen this throughout, well, I've seen it in my travels, but, but more broadly, if you study in, anthro in anthropology, nearly always when people get into goddess worship, um, they end up in some form of witchcraft. There is almost always some kind of sexual uncleanness associated with it. And by that, what I mean is, something other than God's design of man with woman and woman with man in monogamous marriage for life. Anything other than that is not what God intends. And so um, with that, it's almost like it's a, it's a snare is the word, the word, the word, the uh, is the word the Bible uses. A snare is something that, you know, you put some corn out on the ground or some pieces of wheat or something, and you put a, you know, like a loop made out of maybe twine or wire. And you, you set it there with the, with the food in the middle and the birds land. And then you, you tighten the noose that's on the snare until it's around the bird's leg. And then when you're just about right, you give it that last tug, the bird will feel it, try to fly away, but it can't, it's caught. And this is really the nature. It's like a tractor beam or something that, um, that when people go down this goddess worship exploratory path, they, they nearly always end up uh, leaving Christianity. And if they stay with Christianity, they end up in a very odd form of it that doesn't really look like what we see in the Bible. Yeah, I will second that 100%. And I'm not really even sure why I understand it, but that's uh, exactly what happens. And I, I can vouch for that. Um, 
Well, that's good. And that could be, man, we could talk forever about it. Uh, we could definitely talk a lot more about that. Trying, trying to be cognizant yeah. to trying to get to some of the other ones. Uh, all right, let's see. In Exodus, we have this interesting dialogue with Moses and God. It's, uh, it's Exodus 32. Um, and it basically said that the Lord changes his mind in, in several of the translations um, about what, what the outcome was going to be with Israel uh, after Moses uh, pleaded uh, with God. And it's not the only place in the scriptures that we see this. And so the question came in, uh, if God can change, uh, now we're going to confidently say his mind, not her mind. Right. If God can, say, can change his mind, um, what does that say about his sovereignty? What does that say about, does he, does he actually know everything? Does he know all of the outcomes? Uh, again, Ken, this one's a big one. So, yeah. you know. Do your best to answer this in, 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 in five minutes, minutes or less. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so, you know, this really goes to the heart of the traditional Christian understanding of God's sovereignty, which has a couple of pieces to it. One is that, you know, God basically does what he wants and he can uh, speak things into existence or cause things to occur. And nobody can stop him from doing that. Um, the other part of God's sovereignty, though, is that he gives answer to no one else. So it's not just that he can do these things. It's that nobody, nobody can uh, question him on it. It's an interesting thing when you look at the gods of the nations. And I, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of work in comparative religion and I've traveled widely. I would say that most of the gods of the nations, whether it's the ancient Roman or Greek gods, whether it's the gods of India, you know, polytheism writ large in Hinduism, the gods of the Taoists and the Buddhists, if you, you know, go to Asia, if you go to Africa and you look in, well, there'd be any number of animist religions among the various nations of Africa and among the various tribes within those nations. They're not all the same. So we can't just say there is one African religion, but there are certain things that are common among the religions of Africa the traditional tribal uh, animus type religions. And the one thing that you see over and over again in all of this is that um, these gods are very tricksy. They are, they're not always, they're not always purely good. They might be kind of good if they're in the right mood and they may do you a favor, but some of them are just downright mean and nasty and they, you know, always are out to get you. And so people feel the need to appease these gods. When we talk about God in the, in the Bible, God is always good. The book of James says there is no shadow of turning within him. And we see in John, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And we don't just mean literally light and dark. We mean also the moral qualities of light and dark. And so there is no evil in God. When we look at him interacting with people who are by their nature fallen, I mean, the Bible starts out, Okay, God made a perfect world, and before we're three chapters in, boom, it's fallen. Thank you very much, Adam and Eve. Um, when we look at that, what we see is that God may intend something, and in his sovereignty, he could override things. But in a way that we don't fully understand, he's bound himself over 
to a relationship with humanity, with men and women on this earth. And with that, um, you know, God may make a determination, for example, that he's going to, you know, blot out the tribe of Israel because they're in rebellion. But if they repent, then God changes his mind on that. He well knew in advance that they would change their mind, assuming, you know, that they repent in any particular story. So he doesn't make them do it. And I think a, a traditional Calvinist understanding would be that God issues a decree, and because his will is immutable and all-powerful, they have to yield to that. But I think what God more commonly does is he, he admonishes, he exhorts, he rebukes, he will chide and chastise to try to get people to make the right choices. But if we don't, we actually are making God our enemy. And then if we change our minds and we begin to do as he would have us to do, then suddenly the God who had become our enemy, not because he started out that way, but because we made him our enemy by continually poking our finger into his eye, as we, as we change that in us through repentance, now suddenly the Lord says, well, I repent of the evil that I was going to do to you. God's not in the, in the business of repenting of sin, because there is no sin. Anything God does is right. There is sin in the world, but there's no sin in God. So anything he does is right. So it was right when he wanted to destroy because of the rebellion and waywardness of, of a race or particular individuals within it. And he is right when he says, ah, but I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And he relents of doing that evil what we, what we would call evil anyway. It's not evil in the absolute sense, because again, God cannot do evil. But what we would perceive as mean, unfair, unkind, harsh, all these things that stumble people, it's, it's not that God was in the wrong. But now that humanity has decided to change, or a particular individual, or a particular family, or a nation has decided to change, we can actually change us in, in relation to him. And when we change that, suddenly we find that we are walking with him in the light as he is in the light. And now we have fellowship with him. And to quote again from first John, the blood of his son, Jesus cleanses us from every sin. And so we can now go forward. And so in that God is no longer determined to do whatever this thing is that he had decided to do because the entire context has changed. Now in his foreknowledge, he would have known this was coming. And as I say, a traditional Calvinist determinist would say, well, you know, he made it happen. I think the Bible leaves a, a lot more interplay between human beings and God. And when we turn and choose to honor him of our free will, that's the one that really pleases him the most. And where we see this played out is in the book of Job. Uh, now, everybody's heard of Job, but not everybody's read the book of Job. And there are there's a couple of accounts in chapters one and two and, you know, it describes, starts out describing Job and he had a big family, 10, 10 kids. Um, and he's got, you know, these sheep and these donkeys and these oxen, uh, 7,000 of each. And, uh, you know, life is good for Job. He's a blessed man. And it, it, all of a sudden the scene changes. It's no longer on the earth. It's up in the heavens. This is not the realm where most of us think of, but, uh, you know, if you happen to get a prophetic vision or something, you might actually see some, something like this playing out. And it says that there came a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, sons of God is a, is a term that 
generally refers to angels and they might be good angels, i.e. uncorrupted, or they could be fallen angels. They're still called the sons of God in the earliest times and later that language shifts, but that's initially how they're still referred to. And it says, and Satan came also among them. And so God sees Satan there and he says, what are you doing here? And Satan says, well, I've come from going to and fro in the earth and up and down upon it. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job, an upright man who fears God and shuns evil? There is no one like him in all the earth. And Satan says, well, does Job fear God for nothing? But if you take everything he has, he will surely curse you to your face. And so God says, all right, go ahead and do it, but don't lay a finger on the man. And so Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord. Um, there's an attack by a raiding band of people called the Sabaeans. Uh, they attack the house. The kids are killed. Everything is, uh, you know, gone. There's a whirlwind destroys the house. Uh, all the crops or all the herds are carried off. So Job is left desolate. But then it says something very interesting. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So Job is, again, still portrayed as a blameless and upright man in the midst of all this calamity. Now, a lot of us would be shaking our fists. God, how dare you? You know, I thought you were good. I thought you said you would protect me. Job doesn't do any of that. And he, you know, he's, he's grief stricken. And his wife tells him, you know, what are you doing? I mean, you know, she's, she's, not, she's not in the place with God that Job is. And so Job is, you know, working through all of this. And Satan comes back before the Lord. And the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job, a fearless and upright man? There's none like him in all the earth. And so Satan says, well, stretch out your hand and touch his body. And he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord says, very well, then you can go out and do this, but do not take his life. And so God is placing boundaries around what Satan can do, but he's able to afflict and assail Job. And so now, now Job is covered from head to toe with boils. And his wife says, you know, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job says, you speak as one of the foolish women. And he says, should we accept good from the hand of the Lord and not evil? So, you know, these things, these things come about. Now, Job doesn't know what's going on between Satan and God. He's just a hapless victim of this contest that's going on between the two of them. And to our modern mind, it's highly offensive. Why should a man have to go through all this? In the end, the Lord's going to restore him and give him more than he had at the beginning. Although I could question, how do you replace 10 lost children? And, you know, to just, just to do that, just biologically, we're talking a multi-year restoration process, probably multi-decade restoration process. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, re, it's a rebuilding of sorts, but it, it certainly takes time to do. But in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And he even says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What I see clearly in these accounts of Job that I'm quoting rather than reading is that Job was a man who exercised free will. He could have chosen to turn and make God his enemy, but he never did. He stayed true to his God, faithful to his God. He would not curse God and die, as his wife had said. He didn't blame God for all the calamity that came. He didn't really understand it, but he was like, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away, but in everything, the Lord's name is blessed. It's that act of will that we don't talk about very much. 
in our world, everything is either viewed as deterministic or somehow we're a victim of our passions, our emotions. And I think part of what we understand in all of this is God wants us to make a decision, a choice that it, it may originate in the mind, but it ultimately is, is acted out through the will, the third part of the human soul, where we decide I am going to walk with the Lord my entire life, no matter what happens. And when I do that, I expect that I will find favor with the Lord, but there will be challenges along the way. And when I meet with those challenges, he's already given his word that when you pass through the raging waters, when you go through the burning fires, I will still be with you. Just Isaiah 43, I'm quoting from. And so with that, um, we see that God is faithful to us as long as we are faithful to him. And even when we are not faithful, oftentimes he's faithful to us. But what he's really looking for is individuals, whole peoples, whole families, whole nations that will say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, come what may. And if we if we understand that, then we, I think that really gives the answer to the question that you were raising about you know, these difficulties with sovereignty sovereignty he has it but he often chooses to exercise of his own sovereign will on behalf of those who are on side with him and so it behooves us it, i mean it, it is absolutely in our very best interest always to choose for the lord and with that the sovereignty question goes out of the picture at least as it's typically characterized That's a pretty excellent job you just did, Ken. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> That's impressive. I might have been under five minutes. I don't so, think it was under five minutes. I mean, it could have been, but I don't think so. Well, I'm going to throw you a curve here. Okay. I got one more for you. All right. We didn't talk about this one. Um, you've been doing this a long time, this ministry thing. Yeah. Traveling around the world, um, you know, going all the way back to uh, to John Wimber, um, a lot of people want to do what you do. A lot of people want to want to be in ministry and want to do uh, do the ministry. And I wanted to to know people are asking, um, what's one of the highlights that that you have uh, for all these years of ministry? And then what would be one of the things that you wish people knew that they don't about maybe some of the difficulties uh, of being in ministry. Well, I think probably the highlight, it's not, you know, this healing or that miracle or whatever, um, you know, this amazing prophetic word that maybe I gave it, maybe I saw it given by someone else. I mean, those are all really impressive and they do kind of, you know, they'll blow your mind sometimes. But I think the real highlight is that Jesus said in the upper room, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And if you are in this kind of a journey with him, you really do need to be his friend. And because you are his friend, he takes you into his confidence, you get to see things. And I'm not just talking about miracles and healings. I mean, again, I've, I've already spoken to that. But I think what you, what, you be, what you learn about is the nature and the character, the person of God. Moses said in Exodus 33, Lord, you keep saying to me that you know me and I found favor in your sight. 
if now I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways. And so the Lord says, well, I will teach you my ways. And so to learn the ways of God, to walk in his ways requires, well, it's an amazing thing. And I, by the way, I think I probably know, you know, about this much, because how could we possibly comprehend all there is to know of God? I mean, he created the universe and, you know, we know the universe is just, just, it's beyond the, I mean, you see these numbers on the, on the web or in books or whatever that describe how big the universe is, you know, parts of supposedly 15.7 billion light years away, it would take light 15.7 billion years to get, you know, from there to here. I mean, this is, I mean, who can even imagine a time frame like that? We can name the number, but it has it's beyond comprehension. But what we can know is we can know the ways and the character of God. And so I think the most amazing thing about this is the fascination factor. And, you know, they always say when you're picking a career, pick something that interests you, because if you if you do what fascinates you, you will never work another day in your life. I mean, you will work, but, but it won't really feel like work. It'll be something where you're so drawn into it. And some people are really fascinated with, you know, material science or botany or, you know, medicine or whatever. Um, one of the reasons a lot of times people who don't have jobs with that kind of content in them become frustrated is they're not really engaging their mind. They're just whatever they're doing. They're pushing a broom. They're, you know, cleaning homes or picking up trash or waiting on tables in a restaurant. There's nothing wrong with any of that kind of work. The scriptures say that all work, all work is good and noble if it is done with diligence and done unto the Lord. So, all right, great. Nothing wrong with doing any of that. But usually that doesn't hold our interest. But I'll tell you something. I, I mean, I've had a number of areas that have caught my interest through, through my lifetime. I love mathematics. I love physical science. I like biological science too, but not as much as physical science. I love history. Um, I love languages. And for as good as all of those things are, none of them holds my fascination. None of them holds my interest the way God himself does. He is the ultimate object of fascination. And so the thing that's really cool about doing this is I'm every day thinking about, okay, Lord, what do you want to do here? I think your word says this, is that what you think in this case, or am I misinterpreting that word? And so I'm in a constant dialogue with him and I'm constantly learning his ways. And in that I see his beauty. I see his kindness. I see his mercy. I see his creativity. I see many aspects of God, which many people would never even think that that's something you could approach. That's really the big upside for me is being a partner with him in, in the work that he's doing. And then what would I want people to know about uh, in doing this? <sighs> Jesus said, if any man would follow me, let him take up his cross and, and come after me. Well, to take up your cross, everybody knew what that meant. You were going to go die. Now, eventually all of us are going to die. So I'm not saying that because you decide to follow Jesus, you're going to die tomorrow either because somebody kills you or because you just keel over dead. It's more that um, you, in order to know God, you have to back away from you. And that means that you have to die to your own desires that most of the time are poorly based anyway. I mean, they may seem okay at the time, but 
as you get to know God, you realize, wow, that's really, there's nothing to that. That's just carnality. You know, when I was, when I was a young man, um, my friends and I put a band together called Equinocturnia and uh, I played bass guitar, uh, later went on and picked up, you know, regular guitar and electric guitar. But in the time, at that time I was the bass player. And in those years I was all about music. I mean, I just, I love the music of the seventies, all that kind of hard rock, acid rock. I mean, we all know the names of those bands. I was really into it, but you know, when I got that fascination with Jesus, it, it was like little by little by little, all of that stuff that had fascinated me, it, it just paled in comparison. I wouldn't say I killed it, but I just got to where I was like, why, what was this that excited me about this? I would so much rather know God in his ways. I'd so much rather understand his sentiments. I would so much rather think his thoughts after him. I would so much rather that he intimate to me the secrets of his own heart about what is coming, maybe to know the future or things about people's past and that I could unlock those things and help them come to a fuller experience of life um, to, to see his power moving on someone's body and changing them. But, you know, you don't, you don't get to that. It won't cost you necessarily money. It'll just cost you everything you have. And so with that, you will reform your identity and you will change your values and not just your values, but your priorities, the things that are really important to you, how you sequence your life. And as that all happens, you will find that you, you've died to the old you and there is a new you with a completely different set of priorities and so forth maybe new values and uh and the people around you will go what happened to you 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 aren't like you know wh where did you hide ken you know that the body's the same but but he's a different person and that is, can sometimes be hard because we want to hold on to all of those remnants of the old life and it, it's understandable why we might want to do that but it's actually the very worst thing we can do because jesus said he will he he who would save his life will lose it but he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will keep it unto eternal life and so that's really where the life of forever begins here on the earth and then when we die because our bodies wear out we simply move to the next phase we're given resurrection bodies and we go on with the lord and i would assume this although i'm not dead so i can't be sure at a higher understanding of him and an even deeper knowledge of his ways. And so we continue exploring him forever. So the best thing that we can ever do is to fall hopelessly. We often say in love with God, but I'll say hopelessly fascinated with God. And with that love follows. And if you think of, you know, if you've ever had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, um, you know, you become so just obsessed with them. You want to be with them. You want to know everything about them. And well, in the old days, we used to stay up till all hours, you know, hanging on the phone, talking into the middle of the night. Um, you know, you want to go for long walks. You want to go out on a date. You want to, well, you want to get to know every square inch of them, too. So you've got all of this desire that's rooted in that fascination with this other person. And the, the wonderful thing about God is, you know, human relationships can fail. Sometimes we blow it. Sometimes the other person blows it. But with God, he never blows it. And so there should be no limit to the uh, amount of fascination and seeking and knowing him that we come into. That's good. That's great advice. Well, Ken, it's late. You've been up a long time. Took the yeah. And, uh, and so let's, uh, let's call it.
tonight. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for taking time and, and answering uh, these questions. And, and thank you all for, for sending those in. And uh, we just encourage you to keep sending them in. And we will have uh, we'll have another one of these uh, shortly. So, Ken, enjoy your time in the Big Apple, and uh, all right. we'll see you all right back here uh, next week. God is not a theory. Is a podcast of Orbis Ministries. For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to orbisministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Julia with Orbis Ministries. I just wanted to let you know that if you'd like to learn more from Ken and connect with others in the Orbis community, you can download the Orbis Ministries app on your Apple or Android phone. On the app, you'll find a free teaching archive, a conference schedule, and an internal messaging community. A link to download the app can be found in your description. Thanks so much. God bless.